This is a crowd podcast. We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Birth Control. Ho Chi Minh. Richard Nixon back again. Moonshot. Woodstock. Watergate. Punk Rock. Begin. Reagan. Palestine. Terror on the airline. Ayatollahs in Iran. Russians in Afghanistan. Wheel of Fortune. Sally Ride. Heavy Metal Suicide. Don't play this episode backwards. Hello again, and welcome to episode 112 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the history podcast that cracks open Billy Joel's rock'em, sock'em, action-packed hit song for the most surprising stories of the late 20th century. I'm Katie Puckrick. I'm Tom Fordyce. Tom, I'm kind of wondering how we got to where we are today, because Billy thinks it might have something to do with... Heavy Metal Suicide. Heavy Metal Suicide, Katie. So this refers, we believe, to... There's a couple of cases in the middle of the 80s where hard rock was blamed for the tragic demise of a couple of young people in America. And it led to some court cases where judges found themselves having to work out if certain words and sounds played backwards spelled out satanical messages. It's already scrambling my brain, and I think my dad was... was part of the satanic panic as well, because as a young music devotee in the late 70s and early 80s, I played all manner of interesting music, whether it was a challenging progressive rock or perhaps earnest female singer-songwriters, but whatever it was, I'm sure it all sounded like godlessness as far as my <laughs> overly Catholic dad was concerned. And one day... He came into my room and with a conspiratorial look, handed me a comic from the publishing house, Jack Chick, and it was called Spellbound? Question mark. And it was all about how druids had infected rock music (laughs) and the reason why we were all going to go to hell in a handbasket if we listened to things with beats was because... Men in dark and long purple robes entered recording studios at midnight, lit candles, and did backward chanting (laughs) over the tracks. And I've just called up on the World Wide Web a photograph of this comic in question. I was actually interested to see what uh, the customer reviews were of this because it's still for sale. Satan is forever. (laughs) Satan is just not for Christmas, you know. So uh, there's somebody who's given it five stars. Uh, She calls herself Mom2347, verified buyer. And she gives it five stars, something to consider. This is a (laughs) classic. And she goes on to say, even some of the so-called easy listening music was occult prophecy. Carol King's Tapestry and James Taylor's White Album being prime examples. The music was designed to lull you into thinking it was okay because there wasn't that heavy beat. Oh. Consider the piper who played soothing music and stole away the hearts and minds of the children, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> there is just so much to be frightened of. I think today we're just going to hone in on one source of fear. Well, Katie, we have someone with us to hold our hand and walk us betwixt the candles as the gloomy music sounds. And that is music journalist Michael Han. He is also the author of Denim and Leather, The Rise and Fall of the New Wave of British Heavy Metal, NWBHM, the hardest acronym in the music business. Welcome, Michael. Nawabum. Nawabum. <laughs> Nawabum. Why did people call it Nawabum? That never worked. 
Owl. It was it was a, said, a subheading that was invented by the editor of Sounds in May 1979 for a, a gig review um, from the Music Machine in Camden, which is now Coco. And the writer Jeff Barton was actually wildly enthusiastic about the three acts who played, which were Iron Maiden, um, Angel Witch, and Samson. But trying to summon something out of nothing, the Sounds editor, when doing the the strapping of page furniture, wrote in. Flashbang, wallop, crash, it's the new wave of British heavy metal. And the Wobbum was born on that day, <laughs> May 19th, 1979. And Michael, I need to know about your heavy metal credentials. Well, I came here in a purple cape and I lit some candles in the studio. Um, I'm sorry about the goat entrails, but I will get them cleared up. Um, I, I was a kind of prepubescent metal fan, so Nawobum was my 11, 12, 13-year-old me. We didn't have pop music in the house, not because my parents were concerned about the satanic effects of it, just because it was fundamentally too frivolous. We, we were a BBC family. BBC, Martin Spencer's John Lewis. Um, and rock music didn't really enter into that. There was a seven inch of I Feel Fine by the Beatles, and my dad, for some reason in 1967, bought Winds of Change by Eric Burden, oh. which is a terrible record. I listened to it the other week out of curiosity. It's awful. And that was it. So I was kind of left to find my own way with pop. Uh, so it was whoever was my friend, I would adopt their tastes. And at 10, that was Tom and Daniel Kenish. And so I copied them. I just listened to their heavy metal records. And then in my mid-teens, I started listening to Peel and renounced the works of anything remotely heavy metal. But in my 20s and 30s, actually, I quite like the sound of loud, crunchy guitars. And I returned to it. And, and what is heavy metal anyway? Like, how, how would you describe it to me or a space alien or my dad? Loud, aggressive, willfully, but usually good-naturedly stupid. <laughs> a fair amount of thought goes into being stupid. I mean, it's like Dolly Parton says, it, take, it costs a lot to look this cheap. <laughs> With some of those metal bands, it takes a fair amount of intelligence and a lot of brand strategy to maintain this commitment, like Iron Maiden have to. No, honestly, honestly, there's this zombie comes around with us all, all, the, all around the world. You know, it's, it requires a leap of, of imagination. There is something joyously cartoonish, Michael, about a lot of metal. And... For a lot of people who listen to metal, you're in on the joke. You can see the heritage, you can see the way it goes back into cheesy House of Hammer horror films, and you can see that actually all this sort of biting the heads off chickens, etc., etc., is all a little bit of fun. But in this period we're talking about... Not for the chicken. Are, not for the chicken, Katie. Yeah, I'm going to have to draw a line. I think the biting the heads off live animals... Ozzy Osbourne was out of his mind when that happened. I don't think it was a little bit... He didn't even realise they were live animals. He no. thought they were like stage props or something in a board meeting of his record label and picked one up and bit the head off and, oh, Oh, right, okay. But even then he was so off his head that he bit the head off another one just to check, you know. So it's it's not just a bit of innocent fun. It's it's symptoms of deep mental illness and drug addiction. It's the sort of music, basically, that if you have never listened to loud guitars and you listen to loud guitars, you find uh, frankly terrifying, which is what seems to have happened to the parents of the boys and the men that we're talking about in the States in this period. Mm. Yeah, there were, there were two big cases. The first involved Ozzy Osbourne and his song Suicide solution. I, I wonder how anyone got the idea that song was about suicide, but they did. And in November 1985, um, the parents of John David McCullum um, brought a lawsuit against Ozzy. He'd killed himself in October 1984, allegedly after listening to the song. They claimed that there was a line in the song that said, why try, get the gun out and shoot? 
Ozzy Osbourne said that the liner was actually get the flaps out, flaps <laughs> being a, an English vulgarity for a part of the female anatomy, which sounds unlikely. Ozzy's wife Sharon, of course, was the daughter of Don Arden, the legendary hard man rock manager, who asked about um, the song's lyrics, said, To be perfectly honest, I'd be doubtful as to whether Mr Osborne knew the meaning of the lyrics, if there was any meaning, because his command of the English language is minimal. But that one got thrown out of court fairly briskly. Uh, The judge said, and I quote, Musical lyrics and poetry cannot be construed to contain the requisite call to action for the elementary reason they simply are not intended to be and should not be read literally. And there was a First Amendment element there. It was freedom of speech. But there were no backwards messages in that one. That was straight ahead, forward messages. The backward messages came up a couple of years later with Judas Priest. Two young men in Nevada shot themselves on December the 23rd, 1985. 18-year-old Raymond Belknap died at the time, and 20-year-old James Vance maimed himself and died three years later. Now, they said there were subliminal, or rather their parents said, there were subliminal messages on Stained Class, the Judas Priest album that they'd been listening to. The amazing thing here, which I didn't know until earlier, is that Judas Priest couldn't have a freedom of speech defence because if the backwards messages were there, subliminal messages aren't classed as actual speech. So there's no freedom of speech defence. So be careful with that. You cannot cannot shout fire backwards. Erif! Erif! In a crowded room and and hope to get away with it. That's an important loophole. I'm wondering if there was any impact of the perceived cultural cachet or the status of heavy metal that made these cases like more ludicrous or more important and credible? Well, there were, there were weird things that had been happening around this time. A couple of years earlier, there was a serial killer in Los Angeles called Richard Ramirez, starred the Night Prowler. Night and Stalker. Night Stalker, sorry, yes, because he claimed he was inspired by the song Night Prowler by oh, ACDC. Okay. So there was eyes on the world because of that. That's right, because uh, the story was that one of his potential victims encountered him in a charity shop and she picked up an ACDC baseball cap and he locked eyes with her and she said it was so chilling. (sighs) And then later on the freeway after she left that shop, he pulled up alongside her and like gave her this devilish look. So and she never forgot that until he was arrested and she realized that was the guy, the ACDC fan. And there'd been kind of links between heavy music and the dark side earlier. I mean, even the ludicrous case of Kiss, who it was claimed their their name stood for Knights in Satan's Service. (laughs) Or you had Jimmy Page of Led Zeppelin buying up Alistair Crowley's old mansion in Scotland and then by setting up an occult bookshop in London. Or you had Black Sabbath singing songs that were fairly explicitly about Satan, although they always said we're trying to warn people against the evils of Satan. I won't try Birmingham accent because I don't want to offend, offend any listeners from Birmingham. So it was there. And then also, I think this is really important, through the 70s, there was a real rise in the satanic horror movie. Now, if you look at horror movie releases and I'm afraid I did do this earlier, it's generally about a dozen satanic-themed horror movie releases every decade, apart from the 1970s when there were 48. Oh. Yeah, massively more. And, of course, you had The Omen and The Exorcist, which were two huge ones. And when I, when I wrote my book, all the bands there who who kind of toyed with Satanism to one degree or another, they all talked about, you know, 70s horror films. Yeah, that's what they do. They sit up at night watching these horror films. And so they'd write about those films. They're writing about what they were seeing. 
It was everywhere in the culture. And Satan was elsewhere, too, because as Katie alluded to, this was the year of the satanic panic in the States. You know, 12,000 unsubstantiated allegations of child sexual abuse related to satanic rituals. There was the... um, McMartin um, preschool case in Manhattan Beach, where a couple who owned a preschool were charged with more than 300 cases of child sexual abuse. We crazy. This was in 1983 with crazy things like uh, witches were seen flying outside. They had a secret network of tunnels underneath their preschool, and in the wake of that, 300 more preschools were investigated for the same kind of thing. It's so ridiculous. And do you think that the rise of the evangelical and the the religious right had something to do with it? That suddenly Beelzebub was on everybody's radar? Well, be- Beelzebub was on everybody's radar because of the horror films. And you know the yeah. religious right. It doesn't take a lot to get them provoked. And mm. one minute, suddenly they're seeing Satan everywhere. And they saw him in Britain too. We had our satanic child abuse scandals in the 80s in Orkney, in Cleveland, in Rochdale. So Satan was everywhere. Let's look at the Ozzy Osbourne one first, shall we, Katie? Because um, Ozzy has obviously gone through a sort of a late career um, renaissance in some ways, and people forget what Black Sabbath were like. But is it true that, I mean, Ozzy was always the front man, clearly, but the lyrics were mainly written by the charming Geezer Butler? Geezer Butler, yeah. Wrote all the lyrics. And, and yeah, Ozzy just sang them. But Ozzy's voice with this blank, desolate wail that <laughs> absolutely suited them. I mean, listen to those Sabbath records. He sounds like, you know, Rod Stewart sounds like he's singing from the bedroom door, and Ozzy sounds like he's singing from inside a padded cell. The Sabbath lyrics weren't all Sabbath, bloody Sabbath and things like that. I mean, there are songs that are explicitly Christian in Mm. the Sabbath repertoire as well. I remember as a kid listening to Master of Reality, which is the best Black Sabbath album. Oh, can't remember the name of the song now. But there's one in there that is all about giving yourself over to God. But yeah, Geezer Butler wrote all the lyrics and a lot of the horror ones, they were, I stayed up late, I was watching the devil roids out on television. (laughs) You know, it was, that was what it was all about. And, and gimmickry. I mean, it was just a gimmick, of course. So they weren't, like, studying the dark arts, these bands, and they weren't, like, trying to integrate. It was more just like, this is taboo, and it's fun, and it's shock value, and they're just throwing in a few references here and there? Completely. Just the same as Alice Cooper, who didn't intend to actually blow up your school. You know, exactly <laughs> the same thing. They were they were having a laugh. And they were kids playing war in the playground. I mean, I'm old enough, I'm 53, and in the 1970s, you'd just play Germans v. English in the playground. And, you know, and the English always had to win, obviously, so they didn't want to be on the German side. And it's the same as that. It's, it's 18, 19, 20-year-old kids largely, not in the case of Ozzy, who was a bit older, playing at being dark. Except for Jimmy Page, who really was dark. Yeah, well, Bowie had a bit of a mad period as well, didn't he, in his cocaine excess, where he was getting quite into the occult. But this, this whole idea of a moral panic... Michael goes back right to the start of rock and roll, doesn't mm. it? It's just every now and then a form of music will come along where uh, that scares the hell out of parents, and they become convinced that it's going to be the downfall of modern society. Completely, but also the original rock and rollers all actually believed in Satan. That's what makes Joey Lee Lewis great. The tension between the worldliness and the desire and the sensuality and the sin. And his absolute conviction that it was Satan that was driving him to do those things. The same with Little Richard. Um, same to a perhaps less tortured extent with Elvis. And Satan was a real presence in music. In the mid-50s, one of the big country acts was the Leuven Brothers. Right. And one of their big albums is called Satan is Real. 
<laughs> you have to remember that you know what rock and roll was birthed out of fundam- fundamentalist Christian. So Satan was woven into it from the very start. Now that kind of fundamentalist Christian view of Satan got taken out as rock and roll across the Atlantic back to Britain, but then reincorporated in a different way as comic book stuff by Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin and groups like that. <laughs> Okay, well, let's talk a bit about Judas Priest as well, the band behind the the second case you've mentioned. Still had cartoonish elements, but they had a hard edge to them as well, didn't they, in terms of the look of the band, in terms of the sound? They invented the look, and they codified heavy metal. And people always say that the Leather and Studs thing is down to Rob Halford going to sex shops. In fact, it's not, and Rob Halford will admit that. It was their guitarist used to go to a leather shop in Goldhawk Road in West London. And then Rob Halford went, oh, that looks good, and started copying by, by well, going being the lead to, singer. being the singer, yeah, by going to sex shops. So, yeah, and the whole idea of a band uniform was, was K.K. Downing, the guitarist, who said he was fed up of bands all looked different. He wanted something to look like a uniform, so it looked like a gang. It just didn't have to be Beatles suits. People just had to somehow look like they were in the same gang. And that was the start of that. And it was Priest who basically took the blues out of heavy rock and turned it into the da-da-da-da-da-da. So I, in a, I couldn't help doing air guitar as I made that I sound. Did you have your fingers on a power chord there? I, 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 I was doing a power chord, yes, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> oh, God, that's pathetic. They turned it into that kind of palm-muted chug that we associate with metal now. You know, you'd listen to their records, and they're, they're about killing machines and what have you, but again, you wouldn't think these people are really evil. You'd think they're singing like an action comic. That, that's all it is. But wait, they're called Judas Priest. That sounds mildly blasphemous. Judas Priest instead it's, of... I've never heard anyone say it as it, a swear. In, instead of Jesus Christ. You know, yeah. it's like a, a way... It's a workaround. It's a hack. Judas Priest weren't, weren't trying to be shocking. They were just trying to be heavy. The groups that came a bit later were trying to be shocking. Venom from Newcastle were trying to be shocking, definitely. And so what separated Venom from the rest of the little poisonous snakes? Are you calling the people who have metal little poisonous snakes? Well, I'm just trying I've got to, to say, honestly, Katie, they are the loveliest people in music I'm I've ever interviewed, a, all a, of them. I'm ma- Michael, I'm making a very belabored pun. So, uh, Oh, sorry, I'm just too slow. <laughs> there you go. It's all oh, that heavy metal God. that's turned your brain into sludge. It's been adult. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so what was their bag? Well, Venom were a band who could barely play from Newcastle, but who just made everything absolutely explicit. Their first single was called In League With Satan. <laughs> (laughs) Um, Their first album was called Welcome to Hell. At the time, it was like, do they mean this? Do they mean it? And people thought they did at the time, astonishingly. Venom played up to it, but Venom sort of got their comeuppance at the end of the decade in Norway when the Norwegian black metal bands, who were directly inspired by Venom, started murdering each other and burning down churches, much to Venom's horror. One of the favourite things that anyone said to me when I was researching my book, it was it was about the Judas Priest suicide case, and it was Abaddon, the drummer of Venom, um, who was invited onto Newsnight um, <laughs> in the absence of Judas Priest to discuss satanic backwards messaging in music. And Abaddon, again, I won't try a Newcastle accent. And the first thing Paxman said was, are you a Satanist? And I said, yeah. They had this guy, a priest I think he was, from Birmingham. He had a lot of equipment to play records backwards. <laughs> Paxman said, you can't deny this, you can clearly hear what you're saying. And I said, yeah, 
But that's on a song called In League With Satan, and it's <laughs> off an album called Welcome To Hell. It's written there in English on the front cover. You don't have to spend thousands of pounds of other people's money in order to say that. If you don't want your kids to hear it, it's written there in English on the front cover. There's a pentagram. It's got <laughs> lyrics on the back. We spit at the virgin you worship. It's right there. We're not hiding anything. If we play stuff backwards, it's just an effect. It's not going to preach to anybody. We're a satanic band singing satanic lyrics and playing as heavy and as fast as we possibly can. There you go. A good, honest, satanic band. Except it was all a lie, because he wasn't. No. But there you go. But what a magnificent response to Jeremy Paxman. But yeah, the ludicrousness of looking for backwards lyrics about Satan in a record called Welcome to Hell. That's how <laughs> stupid the moral panic had got. Well, speaking of uh, drawing attention to uh, their dark intentions, what about those stickers that went on the front of albums in America, those uh, parental guidance stickers? Is that part of this whole heavy metal outrage? Well, heavy metal bands were brought, brought into that, but that was much as much about sex, wasn't it? Oh, I mean, right. Typical's originally, original Filthy 15 had Prince and Sheena Easton. I do, in fact, I think I have a Spotify playlist of the Filthy 15. The, what, um, sorry, what's the Filthy 15? It was what Typical I'm interested, of you the can TMRC yeah. drew up as, you know, 15 records. She that was really the wife of Al Gore, the vice president. The later the vice president, yeah. yeah. And she, she maintained that the Filthy 15 would threaten the very fabric of society <laughs> by being records that were just simply too appalling. So the Filthy 15 were... Darling Nikki by Prince. Oh, that that's was, quite rude. Yeah, that's yeah, lyrical, masturbated to magazine. That's, that's yeah. pretty lyrical raw. Context, sex, lyrical content sex masturbation. Fair, said Tom and Katie. Yeah. Number two, Sugar Walls by Sheena Easton, oh, written by Prince, of course. That's pretty sassy. That's uh, her internal lady parts. Okay. We're, we're talking about... Yeah, not, not, lyrical content sex, yeah. Not just vulva. I think we're talking about vagina. I think we're going internal okay. in there, yeah. Number three, Eat Me Alive by Judas Priest, Sex Violence. Cannibal. Strap on Robbie, baby. By Vanity, <laughs> so it's by Vanity, so it's obviously written by Prince. Yeah, uh, sex. Prince is, she really doesn't like Prince, does she? Typical. <laughs> Next one, Bastard by Motley Crue. Violence That's and language is a citation. One, right? yeah. I don't know. That seems pretty harmless. That seems like very old school. Bastard. The next one, Let Me Put My Love Into You by ACDC. That's sex. so Spinal Tap. But that, that, it just seems quite tame, that seems doesn't very it? Tame. Now. Yeah. The next one, which ended up being a bit of a downfall for the PMRC, was We're Not Going to Take It by Twisted Sister, which they cite as being violent. But then when there were congressional hearings held about you know terrible stuff in music, Dee Snyder of Twisted Sister turned up, revealed himself to be a committed Christian, <laughs> and talked about how We're Not Going to Take It was nothing at all to do with violence. It was about refusing to accept repression and oppression and encouraging people to just be themselves. And it's a very heartfelt, positive <laughs> message. Yeah. And he was absolutely the star of those hearings because uh, no one had expected it. God bless him. God bless Dee Snyder. Now, carrying on with the Filthy 15, um, in a number eight with a bullet, Dress You Up by Madonna. What? Sex. Dress You Up in My Love. That is so Maybe euphemistic. Maybe they think it's transvestism. I don't know. I think Tipper got to, she, I mean, she could have called this the Filthy Eight and then I, just she, she started padding. stretching it. She's padding here. Animal, Fuck Like a Beast by Wasp. Yes, Classic sex wasp language yeah. violence. Bestiality. Yeah. Is it just... No, it's like a beast, not fuck a beast, okay. just fuck like okay. a beast. So it's more cosplay. Yeah. Is it like, fl it's plushy. Role play. Or position, yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. okay. <laughs> 
Def Leppard, high and dry Saturday night, drug and alcohol use. High and dry? It sounds like you're not getting enough yeah, drugs and, also, and alcohol. Really, if you're picking on Def Leppard for you know the most explicit songs about drugs, really you've not listened to many songs about drugs. <laughs> Into the Coven by Merciful Fate, a cult. I think pretty unarguable that Into the Coven by Merciful Fate is about the It occult. sounds historic to me. What about the Salem Witch Trials? <laughs> it's, it's, that was contemporary at the time. Okay. Mm. Black Sabbath, Trashed, Drug and Alcohol Use, again, of all the Black Sabbath songs. Mary Jane Girls, In My House, Sex, My Boys Venom get on there with Possessed, nice. Occult. Good. And Cindy Lauper, Shebop, Sex Masturbation. C- uh, Cindy Lauper? Sugar walls and uh, strap-ons. And, I mean, it's about, she's against pleasure is what I'm going to say. Yeah, Tip- it's, a, it's a very is. puritanical thing. It's as if she just got off the Mayflower and was transported forward in time 300 years and went, better ban this stuff. Well, she also doesn't seem to have listened to any hip-hop. Does that come later? I'd, well, hip-hop in terms of a middle-aged white mother of however many children she and Al Gore had, and I realise Tipper Gore is more than that. I'm defining herself in her own terms as a parent. Yes. I don't think she would have been hearing much hip-hop by the mid-80s. So, so getting back to heavy metal, it, they are, uh, you, between Wasp, uh, Def Leppard, Black Sabbath, Venom, um, Motley Crue, I guess? Oh, yeah, they're well, little, they're well, more well, hair metal. but um, it's well represented. Well represented. Presented, so they've made a good showing for themselves. I'm just wondering, though, if these kind of Tipper Gore advocated stickers on the front of albums as parental guidance stickers amplified the well, message. Record industry legend is always that it increased album sales. Right. By having people go into shops and go, wow, yeah. that Fancy must this, yeah. be, whoa. And when Venom did their kind of very cold albums, it was the same logic. People go into shops, see it, and go, ooh, that looks scary. And even if they don't buy it, when they go, you'll never guess the scary thing I saw in the record shop, someone else will go and buy it. They they did have, I mean, not the same thing, but they did have album stickers in the UK in the 80s, by the end of the 80s, didn't they? Yeah, they I'm, did. not, I'm not imagining that. No, I remember seeing them on Guns N' Roses' Use Your Illusion 1 and 2. And when, when did that come out? About 89, 90? Yeah, later. something like that, yeah. So they were certainly around at that point. So what made the difference between someone like you, who was able to discern the difference between pretend stuff and those kids in Norway who were devil-worshipping and burning churches and indulging in a little light cannibalism because of venom? Well, I think we have to factor in mental illness, but also it ties into different cultural threads. So black metal in Norway was tied into the rise of far right and the kind of revival of of Norse tradition as this kind of badge of far right identity, a kind of pre-Christian Norse identity. So it was a combination of mental illness, far-right politics, and people without boundaries just always wanted to be more extreme. You know, okay, well, he murdered him. I'm going to eat him. You know, it was, it, there was kind of that level of strangeness about it. When you read about it, it seems like this weird closed world where they were, had almost no contact with the outside and were just feeding each other's furies and fantasies and, and vengeances. But yeah, what happened there was genuinely terrifying. Mm. As well as being a long history of moral panics around certain types of music, Michael, there was actually quite a long 
tradition of backwards messages. And as a result of the furore around the Judas Priest track, it's almost now become a staple for certain bands to try and hide subliminal messages, which aren't that subliminal because they want you to hear them, but as a little sort of well, tip. I've never heard a subliminal message. I've, I've never had the patience to try and spin a record backwards. <laughs> I mean, what's the point? You damage your stylist doing that Is there well. a Beatles one around Paul McCartney's dead? Is that part of the whole... Paul is dead, that yeah. was one. Um, there were alleged to be satanic messages on Stairway to Heaven. Uh, that was one of the popular stories. But you just make anything up because after the Judas Priest case, their manager said, look, you know, if you spin any record backwards, at some point you will hear some sounds that resemble words. That's just the nature of it. It doesn't mean they were meant to be there. One of the tragedies of the internet and digital music and everything is that we can't have these scandals anymore because once we got CDs, you couldn't spin a CD backwards. And the, I'm sure there are people with proper uh, engineering equipment on their Macs who maybe do play bits of music backwards, but none of us who are just listening on Apple Music or Spotify can play anything backwards. We'll never again be able to panic about this. Isn't that sad? Well, Katie and I have actually been hiding subliminal messages uh, played backwards. If you listen to certain episodes of Fire uh, the wrong way around, they are become quite um, explicit, Katie, don't they? They're usually cries for help. <laughs> Does it affect um, Judas Priest's career in any way, shape or form, Michael? Kind of yes and no. A yes in the sense, obviously, it takes them out of commission for the period of the case. And that's that's the thing. You know, it decreases visibility. But as a force... As a force, they were declining by then. You know, by the late 80s, they weren't as big a band as they once were. This was the era in which they were also courting controversy on metal fans by going to record in Paris with Stock Aitken Waterman. Oh, I remember this. The results never got released. There is one 30-second clip on YouTube. I interviewed Pete Waterman a few years ago, and he was talking about it. He was maintaining that they were great, but then Pete Waterman does maintain that everything he does is great, including Let's All Chant by Pat and Mick. <laughs> Say what you like about it. You might not like it, Michael, but it's a great record. It's not, Pete. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, so he maintains the stuff he did with Judas Priest was great, but Judas Priest obviously don't. And they couldn't have put it out because that would have completely killed them, the metal fans who are loyal, but they demand your fealty to metal, would not have tolerated that. But so it didn't really hurt their career. And same with Ozzy, it didn't hurt his career, really. But also, if you are Ozzy and you style yourself the Prince of Darkness and you're accused in public of being the Prince of Darkness, it's not brand damage, really, <laughs> is it? It's kind of brand reinforcement. When did we stop worrying about heavy metal's pernicious influence? And I'm wondering what's taken its place in the pantheon of moral panic. I think heavy metal continued to have scary social effects for a long while afterwards, but in a different way. I mean, you probably watched the Woodstock 99 movie, Trainwreck. Yeah. That is heavy metal. And that is a moral panic. And that, but that's more because of the particular unpleasantness of that style of heavy metal, which was fundamentally encouraging antisocial behavior from jocks who were drunk and happy to oblige. But there wasn't an overwhelming moral panic about this music being evil. It was more this music is crap and it's liked by the idiots. It was quite bad, that period, it was, wasn't it? It was not New, new metal points. has not aged well. And metal became respectable, partly because people around my age started occupying, commissioning and writing jobs in the media. And we had fond memories of groups like ACDC or Iron Maiden. And so rather than writing about them mockingly or making reference to Satan all the time, we would write about them appreciatively. That was a big change. And that, that's going to happen with new metal any minute now. I've been putting this for five years. The rehabilitation <laughs> of new metal from journalists yeah. who were 14 when Rolling came out or something. Um, you, you see bits of it already, but I think it'll happen full scale. 
And also, you know, lots of those old men of metal who once proclaimed themselves to be, you know, the enemies of everything decent turned out to be actually quite nice old blokes who've been pretending all along. They, they stopped being very satanic and just appeared in all those, you know, BBC4 retrospectives and they seem to be nice guys. Real moral panic has to reside, I think, amongst something youthful. And that's why in the last few years it's been in London, it's been about drill and grime and and forms of hip-hop um, associated with criminality. And it's the same set of scares. These lyrics glorify violence, these lyrics glorify death. It's not my world, drill and grime, but it does seem in more cases in those records that the, the, the lyrics about shooting people are based on reality than any of Black Sabbath's yeah. lyrics about sacrificing goats were. So Yeah, because I'm, I'm sort of sad about the, the passing of the supernatural, you know, that sense of wonder and pretend... I mean, I love that everybody joined in this group hallucination, you know, whether it was the wife of a vice president or a congressperson in America to anybody clutching their pearls uh, in a little English cottage. It seems like um, everybody was so willing to suspend belief and to get on a broomstick about it. I think we're all just much worldlier now as well. I mean, it's not just that we're 40 years on in society. It's a world where we are bombarded by information. And so many of the things that you see now on the street, would you would have thought were shocking and distressing 40 years ago. And that's been happening throughout. I remember the first time in the, when would it have been, late 90s, when I saw those FCUK slogans. Mm. My God. Oh, yeah, for a French connection. Yeah, my God, I thought. You are basically writing fucking 24 high letters <laughs> in the middle of London. Well, I just thought of something, though. Um, here's where all the satanic panic and the the heavy metal imagery has gone in QAnon. That's kind of where it's mm. popped up again, because there's lots of talk about Jewish space lasers and uh, satanic uh, child abuse cults and you know everything is a bit fantastical and you know one step away from human sacrifice. I think the difference is though that those people are bonkers and try to take it seriously and mm. I, I honestly don't think heavy metal fans did. I mean when we talk about the kids who were involved in the cases that went to court it was their parents who brought the cases you know mm. James Vance in the Judas Priest case the lad who died three years later said you know that I have no doubt our minds were disturbed by drinking alcohol and listening to heavy metal records Okay, let's let's just concentrate on the first of the two things that you think disordered your mind, because I honestly think the listening, the drinking alcohol would have had a greater effect than listening to "Better by You, Better Than Me" by Judas Priest. Mm. Perhaps if Tipper Gore had wasted a few years as well, that she would have found out that metal was killed by grunge. She yeah, didn't actually need right. to worry about it. Yeah, that a new form of music would come along and render all her fears. Unnecessary. Yeah, and wouldn't that prove to be wholesome with all those people dying of heroin overdoses and everything? Be careful what you wish for. Did you also get Michael? So the sort of the heavier, more cartoonish end of metal. Did you get a more sort of family friendly? Maybe that's the wrong phrase, but a sort of slightly more clean cut version. When we see hair metal take over, and suddenly every video for whether it's um, Bon Jovi or Motley Crue, Motley Crue, everyone's flying around in the videos on wires and all that. And it's 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 still cartoony, but the hint of violence has been taken away from it a bit. I don't know about that. Maybe they were trying to remove the hint of violence, but there was real violence around a lot of those groups. God, yeah, Motley Crue, read the dirt, the autobiography. 
I mean, these were terrible, terrible human beings in every respect. Utterly appalling. And a lot of the LA bands were encouraged in that kind of behaviour. Far worse than anything Venom ever actually did or Black Sabbath ever actually did. You know, they're, they're just nasty. So while it might have been presented as nice, it really wasn't. But there was an attempt to create the true alternative to satanic metal. Which was stri- well, specifically Christian metal, Striper. Oh. Yeah. Spelt, spelt how? S-T-R-Y-P-E-R. Thank the, you, the, the traditional spelling. Yeah. Yes. Uh, with their Isaiah 53.5 banners. I can't remember what the biblical reference is. They were actually genuinely Christian. They said, but we really like this music. We just don't want to sing all those lyrics. It's not very <laughs> nice, is it? So we'll sing hopeful lyrics. But for a while, when they were being scouted by the labels, they didn't notice that this was a Christian band. Because, of course, you're going to watch a band live, you're not hearing that many of the words from the singer. And the stuff between songs, the A&R people just thought was shtick. It was only when they got them into the studio, it was, oh, my God, they mean it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, they are actually Christian. But there's Christian everything around these days. I mean, it's not just Christian rock. There's a big Christian hip-hop scene. Yeah, every genre now has its Christian exponents. One more thing, Michael, before we go. If uh, there was someone listening to this who has no idea what heavy metal is and has never listened to it, and you were to take their hand and walk with them into the world of heavy metal, what three bands should they listen to? If you wanted three bands that define the parameters of heavy metal and where it can now go... I would start with the Pacific Northwest band Earth, who you might sometimes listen to and not think they were metal at all. It's very slow, stately, often instrumental music. Sometimes without any of the signifiers of, of heavy metal, e.g. fuzz guitars. I would say listen to Master of Reality by Black Sabbath because there is just complete heaviness and it's an amazing record. And Bill Ward was a surprisingly jazzy drummer. For something that's just purely melodic and about songs... Hysteria by Def Leppard, which lots of people would say is not a metal record, it's a pop record, but that's fine by me. You know, it's got elements of metal in there, and that shows that metal bands can just be hit makers. Michael Han, thank you so much. And if you you. could form one more power chord with your left hand while striking your right hand across the strings of a V shaped. A flying V. Flying V Gibson, that'd be lovely. Thank (laughs) you. Okay, do I need to do the legs of Kimbo? Yes, please. And go. Perfect. Do you like the sustain there as well? The sustain yeah. is great and my ears are ringing. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you Thank so you much, much for having me. <laughs> Talking to Michael Han has really shaken some flotsam and jetsam out of my frontal lobe. Thinking about my history with heavy metal, probably my first and last experience with it would have been Black Sabbath's debut album. Mm entitled Black Sabbath with a very spooky-looking Aussie in a forest of dead leaves with some gothic manor (laughs) in the background. I would have been about, oh, I don't know, like eight years old or something. And I opened the gatefold jacket, and I read this terrifying poem that talked about severed bird wings and poppies bleeding before a gesticulating death and young rabbits born dead in traps and dead swans and mute birds tired of repeating yesterday's terrors. (laughs) I mean, listen to this, the dead black swan that floats upturned in a small pool. I mean, yuck. Yuck. This is um, totally scary, but enthralling. And I do remember swapping out 
my light bulb in my little bedside <laughs> lamp for a green light bulb. Wow. And then things got freaky. <laughs> I find myself thinking, Katie, that I'm really, really glad that I've never been invited to a dinner party by Tipper Gore, because I'm not sure how much fun it would be. It'd be no fun. No fun at all. Or unless you turned her on to some really <laughs> devilish tunes. If you would like another podcast to listen to before Katie and I return to your ears in a week's time, try The Secret History of the Estonia. This is an investigation into the mystery of where a passenger ferry sank back in 1994, killing 852 people. Oh, it was Europe's worst peacetime shipping disaster since the Titanic, and many people remain convinced the truth behind the sinking has been covered up. Journalist Stephen Davis hears unbelievable eyewitness accounts from survivors and speaks with investigators who've been working on the case for years. It's fascinating stuff and ends up delving into espionage, spies and the Cold War. Absolutely worth checking out. Just search for The Secret History of the Estonia to check it out. And if you'd like to get in touch with a story or a guest idea, well, you can contact us on email at fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk or on social media where it's spread that fire on Instagram and Twitter. And make sure you check out our merch collection at spreadthatfire.com. Next episode, Katie, we shall be talking about foreign debts. Which doesn't sound hugely exciting, but we shall make it so. See you then. Bring some lube. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become 
Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.